welcome to Sky Team's People First with Morag Barrett. What's the biggest risk you've ever taken? According to my guest, Michelle Wooker, your answer to that question tells us a lot about you and your risk fingerprint. Risk fingerprint is the term that Michelle coined to describe our individual approaches to risk, uh, what you value, who you value, what's important or not. Michelle is a strategist, a speaker and best-selling author. She's the author of four books, including the global bestseller, The Grey Rhino, How to Recognize and Act on the Obvious Dangers We Ignore, and the new sequel, You Are What You Risk, the new art and science of navigating an uncertain world, which came out in April 2021. She's a former media and think tank executive. She's the founder of the Chicago-based strategic advisory firm, Grey Rhino and Company. So I invite you all to join us as we explore the Grey Rhino and how our perspectives on risk define who we are. Michelle, welcome to People First. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, I am so looking forward to our conversation. But as ever, I start with my opening question, which is when you were at elementary school <laughs> and the teacher said, Michelle, what do you want to be when you grow up? What was your answer back then? The very first one was um, ice skating cheerleader, which was, I was a creative kid. What can I say? Um, and then after that, it was a jockey. Oh, wow. Okay. A jockey. So do you ride now? Not in, not in quite a long time, unfortunately. Okay. So what was the pivot point then that got you to think tank leader, strategist, <laughs> and author of four books? Well, you know, when I was in, in high school, I think probably even college, I don't think I knew what a think tank was. I'm not sure when that word came into my orbit. Uh, when I started college, I was going to be a psychiatrist. I was going to go to medical school, uh, except that I pass out when I see blood, which I thought I would get over, but it quickly became clear that, and because I like, like doctors do, like you get over it, that's what you do, right? Um, and, and that's when I decided, I had always wanted to write books. Um, and so I decided that I was gonna become a journalist and write. And um, when I graduated uh, and I did graduate school, I was very interested in finance, economic development, uh, wrote for Dow Jones and International Financing Review for quite some time writing about Latin American debt. Mm -hmm. um, and at some point I just, uh, you know, I was good at it, but it wasn't feeding my soul. So I, I took a break and wrote my first book and went back and, you know, in the, in the second, uh, in the second round, uh, I wrote about Argentina and Greece. Argentina, uh, had a, a debt crisis, 2000, 2001, mm -hmm. which I was sort of writing about as it was unfolding, including a, a proposal about nine months before Argentina's collapse to do a write down and restructuring of the debt, which would have turned okay. things around and yeah. it didn't. And so I, I really took that experience with me. I wrote a lot about sovereign debt restructuring and why we need a better mechanism. And 10 years later, Greece was in the same situation or similar at least. And I wrote about that. I went on CNBC, I talked about it and Greece and its creditors actually came to an agreement, which was amazing. And that was my question, really. They both saw a big, scary situation coming at them. And one of them dealt with it in time and the other one didn't. And my question was, what makes, what makes the difference? And that's, that's where the gray rhino came from. This big, scary thing, just, you know, charging, charging at you and giving you a choice to do something or, or not to do something. 
All right, so let's just be a little clear because that that piqued my curiosity. I mean, there's a whole menagerie as you get to work internationally of animals that reflect essentially the equivalent of the grey rhino. There's the ostrich with its head in the sand, the gorilla in the corner, the moose on the table, the stinky fish, black swans. So um, help us get through the zoo. And why do you <laughs> land on uh, grey rhino? It really is. It really is a zoo. Well, of course, you know, Black Swan came out in 2008 as a metaphor for the thing that's so improbable, unforeseeable. You just can't. It's not even in your head. So you get sideswiped by it. And then, of course, we have the elephant in the room, which normalizes something that's there you know about but nobody says anything nobody does mm -hmm. anything and you know the idea is that you can get away with ignoring it and i didn't think either one of those was was good and so this this rhino image had come into my head because of the you know literally visualizing this situation that argentina and greece were facing and a friend of mine made a black swan joke he was like oh you could call it a black rhino and I went to the zoo in grade school when I wanted mm -hmm. to be a nice feeling cheerleader. And, and I knew there was such a thing as a black rhino, but also a white rhino. And so I went to look it up. And that's when I realized all rhinos are gray, but we call them black and we call them white, which is kind of ridiculous. Like we call mm -hmm. things what they're not. It's so freaking obvious that they're gray, but we don't talk about it. So that was a metaphor for how much more likely we are than we think to not pay attention to the big scary thing coming at us but it's you know it's distinct from the black swan which you can't picture this is something the outline is right there you can see it people are talking about it unlike the elephant in the room they're talking about it some people are actually doing something about it and my, my question really was was what makes the difference between the people who who get out of the way the the people who get trampled and the people who see the strength of this cr crisis and use it for something good I think you use the example of actually riding the rhino. So I'm now um, picturing somebody jumping on the back rodeo style and riding the rhino. <laughs> but of course, to your point, they're grey, they're white, they're black. That it's the the language we use to identify risk is important because what you know, I hold my hand up, and what you see is my palm. What I describe are the knuckles. But of course, it's the same thing, but from a different perspective, and that can influence whether or not we think of it as being maybe risky because it's going to punch you on the nose. So how important is it in terms of just even understanding our starting points so that we can quantify whether that's a rhino or something, I don't know, more cuddly? <laughs> I actually use the image of a cuddly rhino sometimes too. My friends started sending me videos of baby rhinos highly recommended there's one of a cute one playing with a goat it's so adorable and you know my point is you know you 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 handle it when it's still a baby rhino so it doesn't get, uh, mm -hmm. get dangerous and scary um but i've gotten asked a lot over the the past you know year or so since the pandemic began you know about the the pandemic is you know was covid 19 a black swan or gray rhino and and part of me hesitates now because you can only talk about black swans in hindsight. And mm -hmm. okay. I want people to talk about gray rhinos going forward. You know, what can we do about it uh, going into the future? But but the truth is, you know, the, the pandemic was, was something that a lot of people saw coming. And we've gone through these before. My great grandfather died in the 1918 great flu pandemic. He actually had just opened a restaurant, his lifelong dream. And uh, and lost the restaurant, obviously, and his and his his life. And uh, you know, so so there are 
plenty of warnings. There had been all sorts of scenario exercises just, you know, months before this happened. Mm -hmm. So um, yes, you can talk about it in hindsight as an example, but I really want people to talk about gray rhinos going forward. What are the gray rhinos in front of us? So it's, it's been driving me a little crazy the last couple of months because every time something happens, like, you know, Suez Canal and the, you know, the Texas deep freeze, people email me, was this, was this a gray rhino? I'm like, what's in front of us what's in front of us yeah (laughs) i'm with you michelle last year one of my hot buttons was the word unprecedented it was being bandied around and it got to the point where it felt like it was an excuse for inactivity and an excuse for being overwhelmed in the moment because to your point we had the 1918 flu epidemic of course we i wasn't alive then i was born shortly after that So there's, okay, so it's 100 years, I get that. But we've had warning signs with Ebola and SARS and other viruses that thankfully weren't as virulent as this one. And we missed the clues. And that, to me, is one of the biggest frustrations. And then I'm talking with people saying, well, it's a once in the lifetime. It's unprecedented, aka we're not going to have another one, which to your point is, saying, no, we shouldn't be complacent. We should be scanning the horizon for the gray rhinos that may emerge from left field, but also the gray rhinos that are staring us down right now. So in your book, you give us a wealth of examples of rhinos and baby rhinos. So give us some examples of what you classify as those risks that are obvious, but we are perhaps still ignoring. Oh, so many. Climate change, when I started writing the book, was at the top of my list, and it's still on the top of my list. I do a lot of of speaking and and interviews about climate change, which, of course, is something that a lot of people are doing something about, Mm -hmm. but not enough. You know, are we going to do it in time? Uh, So that's huge. Financial crisis, which which is, of course, you know, where I cut my teeth. Um, I look at... at, uh, at sky high stock market prices. I look at these, these, you know, low interest rates for so long and, you know, high corporate debt. And I look at them, you know, bringing in all sorts of uh, retail investors to the market who, you know, last time that happened ahead of the dot-com boom, a lot of retail investors lost money. And it's also created, uh, not just created, but fueled inequality, Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, makes the economy you know, less, uh, less healthy, less sustainable in the long run. So th- those are the big picture ones that, that I talk about. Um, but, you know, talking about baby ones, um, I was surprised when the book came out, how many people came up to me and said, how do I apply this to my personal life? And some of them just did. They said, this is how I apply this to my personal life. You know, whether it's like relationships or finances or, or health. And, and that really, blew me away because it wasn't what I intended, but, uh, but I loved it. And so that actually is what led to you are what you risk, which is includes a lot more of these, these small gray rhinos, but you know, to the person who's facing them, they're pretty darn big. Yeah. Cause I mean, as you say, the gray rhinos have a huge impact on the political landscape, the social landscape. They are huge challenges that require us all to pitch in to solve, but you are what you risk brings it down to an individual level. What can I do? And I can see a copy of the book there on the shelf behind you. I have a digital copy on my Kindle. And what struck me when I started was the fingerprint on the cover. So tell us about the fingerprint and the phrase that you're using, our risk fingerprint. 
It's I'm so glad you asked about that because it's it's a fascinating story. I had um, I'd finished the first draft uh, about the same time that the publisher sent me the art, and there were a couple references to risk fingerprint in there. It's just I thought it was a good metaphor, um, but it wasn't as big as it is a part of the book now. And we were working on the the, the cover, and they sent a symbol of chaos, which is people from gaming will know. It's basically eight arrows pointing in different directions as sort of possible paths you can take. And all my friends in business said, oh, yeah, I get it. And my best friend said, huh? She's a librarian. So I'm like, if a librarian okay. doesn't get what that's about, that's like not a good, that's not a good no. sign. So we went back to the drawing board and I thought about it. And I said, what represents, you know, choices, uncertainty or not? So I said, you know, a maze. And so they came back with some other maze designs, some of which were really, really cool artistically, but wouldn't work in a little thumbnail on the, on the digital screen. And someone said, what if you do an icon of the maze? Like, like the, you know, the latest version of the symbol of chaos. So we came back with another version and a couple of them, one of them said, oh, I saw that on a Chinese menu somewhere. I'm like, okay, that's not what I'm going for. But someone yeah. said, that looks like a fingerprint. fingerprint. And I went, yeah face palm moment i talk about risk fingerprints and so we did that and it came out you know it's a, a fingerprint made out of a maze and it says exactly the fingerprint says the identification about as clearly as you possibly can and the the choices the the different paths you can take the the uncertainty of it it just it was amazing so i actually spent a lot more time working on that you're know, talking about that concept in the book and then as some friends were reading through the book, several people said, you know, these terms that you use, risk fingerprint, risk empathy, these are amazing. You know, you should, you know, one of them said, why restructure the whole book around those? I'm like, I can't restructure the whole book. No, that's a bit much. And, and someone said, you know, can you have a glossary? And so what we ended up doing is we worked with a designer and we sprinkled, uh, you know, graphics and poll quotes throughout the book to emphasize these uh, these terms, risk fingerprint and, and so on, which worked out really well because I see the book much as a gray rhino as the beginning of a conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, people, a lot of people don't talk about risk, even though it, we make 35,000 choices a day. And each one of those choices is really a risk because risk is choice. And we don't look at risks in terms of risk. But if we talk about it and think about it in some of the ways that I'm pr proposing, it, it opens up doors you didn't even know were closed. It can help to resolve conflicts in relationships. Uh, it can help you to be more confident in your career. I mean, it's just so powerful. Language just really is. I mean, just like using gray rhino instead of black swan and yeah. talking about things in the future instead of in the past is, is so powerful because it just, it's about how you think and, and how you see the world. It's funny, there's so many different ways I want to take this right now, because I was thinking about the everyday risk that we don't pay attention to, you know, like getting out of bed and tripping over your slippers. It's a common accident. Which necklace do I wear? And is it actually going to add value or not? Am I going to burn myself on the kettle or trip down the stairs? And you talked there about the importance of language. So in a moment, I want to come back to risk empathy, because you snuck that into a sentence and my ears pricked up. But what are some of the common misperceptions of risk? Is this about us becoming risk adverse or risk neutral? It's what, well, you know, when I was reading all the research, there were all of these, these headlines that, you know, women are more risk averse, millennials are risk averse. And it it yeah. like made my head want to explode um, because first of all, uh, a lot of the research is, is, is not as conclusive as the headlines might 
lead you to think. And the other part of it is that risk averse is that you take less risk given all things being the same. And things are not all the same. Like investing in a stock market that it is at historical highs is very mm-hmm. different from investing at the bottom or, or investing, you know, when you don't have a rainy day fund or when you're paying off student loans, mm-hmm. um, you know, making those choices or, or similarly, like, you know, women in work situations, uh, the, the evidence shows that a lot of women who are in, in non-gender typical roles, like, a, you know, a police chief or, or whatever, if they make a misstep, they're actually punished oh, more than yeah. men are. And, you know, women through all sorts of situations uh, take social risks that aren't necessarily social risks for men. You speak up in a meeting and either you're ignored or you're called, you know, bossy or too assertive. And or five minutes later, some guy says the same thing and everybody says, oh, that's the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. And so women are really experienced at taking social risks. So the, the speaking out in a meeting is riskier for a woman in the first place than it is for a man. But the woman's also had a lot more experience. And I think women have had more experience taking risks in their life. And, and risk is like a muscle. Like the more risks you take, the, the, the more you think about it, the more you, you hone those skills, the better you become at making good decisions. And some of the other research shows that in hindsight, uh, men and women evaluate the decisions, the risks that they made differently. And, you know, the women evaluate them more accurately, learn from them and and move on. So so when people talk about women being risk averse, I'm like, no, no, no. no. You know, women are risk risk savvy. And uh, and, and so that term just, you know, that that drives me nuts. So I'm, I'm glad you brought it up and gave me the opportunity to uh, to stomp on it. So let's go back to risk empathy then. What what is risk empathy and how do we use that? So risk empathy is the ability to understand someone else's perspectives on risk, how sensitive they are to it, because two people can see the same risk and one person will say, ah, no big deal. And the other person, ah, like, you know, crossing, cross, jaywalking, you know, yeah. street. like I'm like, no. And other people are like, oh, it's no, no big deal. You know, That's so amazing. you see it differently. And then even if you do see it the same way, you're, you're willing to take on different amounts of risk. So understanding, you know, someone's risk sensitivities, their, their attitude, their preferences, but also why, uh, you know, somebody may be very, very conservative with their money because their dad lost everything, you know, the experiences in our life go into that. So once you understand, you know, your own risk fingerprint, you know, the, the decisions that you make that, you know, like, like an impression on a glass, tell the world who you are, Mm -hmm. um, but that have, you know, innate influences, uh, your, your personality, experiences, habits, the people in the room, the temperature in the room, whether you had spicy, root, spicy food for lunch. Yeah. Once you understand all of those things about yourself, you can then have conversations with other people about their risk fingerprints and why they're making the risk decisions that they do. And this comes in super handy. For example, if you're on a business trip with a colleague, and one person wants to get to the airport super early and the other person likes to cut it really close. So you're like Ooh, almost. <laughs> I hate that. That, that just stresses me out. No. We're going to go early. Make sure then it's the travel. It's the airline's problem, not mine. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. I ask that question a lot in workshops and it always gets, you know, people just, just go chattering right away. But when you understand like why the other person, if they're like, oh, I missed a plane last week, I want to be extra careful this week. 
once you understand why somebody's making the risk decisions you are that, that they are, you can come up with something that's more comfortable for both of you. Or if you're on a board or a strategy team, going in there knowing that everybody's super, super conservative and you know they want to minimize risk or knowing that everyone's like a move fast and break things mm-hmm. kind of person, that lets you know what kind of people you need to bring in the room to kind of, you know, dial things back if you're all, you know, leaping before you look, or people who are more innovative, more creative, more willing to to risk failure in order to reach a, a bigger good. I, I love the fact that you talk there about the language and having a conversation to understand our risk parameters, because often we don't. It's one of those either assumptions that you just need to toughen up and get in there and have a go, or it's no, that's too dangerous. And then you you end up with disagreements. But I'm also now thinking about the metaphor of fingerprints. And of course, I have 10 of them. So to what extent do our risk fingerprints change either as we age and we have more data to pull on as to what is the real or informed risk? And also, does it change based on what I'm choosing to do in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Your your mood affects your your risk taking. That you know, if it's colder, you're likely to to take more risks. If you if you had spicy food for lunch, you're likely to take more. Really? Yeah. If you're colder, you're going to take more risk. Yeah. There's there's studies, some of them of, of birds, and also of of you know some people with you know uh, putting their hands in in ice buckets, and and there's some gender differences in those as well. But, you know, whether you're comfortable, traders use a lot of biofeedback, you know, looking at their heart rate variability and other things. And if they're too stressed or too fatigued, they're like, okay, I'm just going to put down the mouse and stop trading for a while. Um, but, you know, the, this this idea of having a bunch of different fingerprints is, is interesting because you can have a slightly different fingerprint for health decisions where, you know, I'm super conservative. I have celiac disease. So, like, you know, the tiniest little molecule of gluten causes major, major problems. Wow. And so yeah. I'm super conservative with my health. And when I was younger, I was not, I was, you know, invincible and didn't pay as much attention. And, you know, as, as a result had a lot of, of problems that just went undealt with, which of course made them worse. So those experiences changed how I deal with health um, or, you know, finance relationships, um, you know, recreation, you know, bungee jumping, uh-uh, not going to mm-hmm. do it. But, you know, being an entrepreneur, my dad always says to me, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do what you do. Um, But at the same time, you know, my dad got married and had four kids, you know, raised them on an educator's salary. I mean, that's a whole other set of risks. So you've got a slightly different risk fingerprint for different parts of your life. And it does change over, over time. I talked with a a 40, 40 something CEO of a company in a family company in Central America. And the older generations had seen, you know, the, the parts of their company nationalized. They lost almost everything during the civil wars. And so they were very concerned with you know, preservation of capital and family unity. And so the younger generation was afraid that the company was becoming obsolete. And so they saw very, very different risks. And so I, I said to my friend, I'm like, well, have you talked about why you have these risk preferences that you do? And, and I could almost see this light bulb going on over, over his head. And he went back and talked to people and they had that conversation. And, and why did the older generation want to preserve capital? Well, to pass it on to the younger generation. So, mm-hmm. you know, here's the younger generation going, help, it's going to disappear. 
And that conversation really helped to smooth over a lot of differences and help them to come up with a strategy that more people were comfortable with. I love the opening story in the introduction to your book. Actually, you talk about your grandmother and how after she passed away, you discovered, was it 20 pounds of butter in the freezer and 20 pounds of sugar in the cupboard, <laughs> which would make most people go, what the heck? But when you realize she grew up through rationing and through the war, it makes sense. These are the staples that you need in a time of shortage if you want to, to bake and have luxuries. So I'm curious, you mentioned their relationships, and I'm wondering if your research shows any correlation between, so I'm going to give you two scenarios. Um, re resort, uh, reports show there's an epidemic of loneliness. I, I, I'm on my own. So if I feel isolated, it's just me. Does my risk appetite, my fingerprint get bigger or smaller? And on the other side, when I have a strong network, when I have allies around me, does that help or hinder or does that just create peer pressure of go on, climb the tree, Morag, <laughs> as I go back to seven? Um, so what role do relationships and the quality of our relationships play in our individual risk fingerprint? It's, it's such a great question. And unfortunately, the answer is it depends. Depends on who else you've got around the room. As you know, okay. any parent of a teenager knows, mm -hmm. you know, they, they worry about who their kids are hanging around with because there is peer pressure. Um, it also depends on if it's, if it's people of the same gender or different gender. And some of the research was fascinating on how different this is in individualist versus collectivist cultures. Okay. And they found also there's a, there's a phenomenon called risky shift which is that when people get together in a group, they're mm -hmm. either much more conservative or much, much more risk-seeking than they would be you know, as individuals summed up. And that depends on how homogeneous the group is. I mean, is everybody just going to have a little group think backslap session and repeat what everybody else says? Or is it a group where you've got different points of view, different risk fingerprints, and you can have a real structured debate uh, because you know knowledge and consideration of things also really helps to improve your ability to head off a risk or to respond to it if the, you know if you can't keep it away. Um, but some of the research showed that in the individualist societies, um, women and men, you know, in in the groups tended to behave more in in stereotypical gender ways than in the collectivist cultures. Mm. Uh, so the influences on you are are very, very different depending on your own cultural background, you know, on your gender, if, if you are dealing with a lot of stereotypes and on the composition of the people in the room. And I would say also really on the, on the habits of the people in the room, because you you can't change the, the genetic part of your risk fingerprint, your, mm -hmm. your personality, but you can change the environment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that includes the people around you. It also includes the, the habits. I mean, you think about the difference between someone who uses expensive lotions with shea butter and stuff on their hands or someone who does manual labor and has lots of calluses. You know, that's the difference between having habits or not. And the first habit to be aware of is, is you know, risk awareness, mindfulness. So I'm curious then, given that the pandemic has impacted all our habits, it's impacted all of us. How has that shifted our attitudes to risk? 
It's such a great, great question. And I get asked it a lot and I, I haven't sorted it out part, partly because, you know, as we come out of the pandemic and sort of readjust to life, not exactly as it was before, but to similar habits, it's, it's hard. You know, some people want to keep that mask on. Actually, I have spring allergies and I'm like, I want that mask every spring, <laughs> you know, cause that's, that helps solve another problem. Um, but there's there's all sorts of levels. I, you know, I think people have weighed different risks differently. Uh, there's a lot of talk about people switching careers, you know, moving to different places, uh, deciding on whether the company that that lets them work from home or not is the one where they want to be. Uh, thinking about the risk between staying in a job where you're stagnating or taking some time to find the one where you really want. And, and there's a public policy comp component to that too. I mean, you know, you look at, you know, the, the sort of stimulus packages and, and unemployment and some people will say, oh, well, this person's not taking a new job because, you know, they can just, you know, sit there on the dole. Whereas some people say, well, if that person has the wiggle room to wait for a better job, or to, you know, to get the education or to really, you know, wait for the right job to come along instead of just taking whatever. Well, that's actually makes them more productive. It makes whatever company hires them more productive and makes the economy more productive. So there's this sort of weird feedback loop, but people are weighing different risks in different ways. Other people, I think, have become very, very aware of their mortality. And mm -hmm. just as, you know, I, I talk in the book to a, a, a uh, an oncologist who talks about people who are diagnosed with cancer and, you know, some of them, when it's fatal, they, they go and do what they can while they're in the time they have left. And, uh, you know, it affects how aggressively they want to be treated or not. And then some people, if they go into remission, they completely change their lives afterwards. And, and I think the pandemic has had a similar effect when people are really deciding what is most meaningful. There are things that they've had to do out, do without that they didn't think they could do without before. So there's lots of individual differences. Um, but there's a really interesting article in The Economist uh, about how historically after after you know pandemics, um, afterwards, people tended to take other risk, financial risks, uh, you know, more entrepreneurs, more, you know, big investments in the market, you know, look at the at the roaring 20s. And some of that's a change in attitude. And some of it is is monetary policy, which I, I won't geek out on you about now. Next time. Yes. But they, you know, it also leads to it can lead to social and political upheaval. And, you know, we're certainly seeing a lot of, of very, very heated conversations and exchanges. So I think we're we're going to see a lot more big changes and, you know, people willing to say, hey, I'm done with this. I'm not going to put up with this anymore. And not everybody's going to feel the same way. So there's going to be a lot more uncertainty going forward as well. So I know there's a lot of good richness and thought provoking content in You Are What You Risk, and I encourage everybody to get their copy. But how do I go about diagnosing my risk fingerprint? Are there tools and resources available for me? There are, absolutely. There's some informal tools. Like I, I ask people often, you know, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? And it, it really it really shines light on things. Uh, there's a tool called the Risk Type Compass that I'm, I'm so obsessed with that I went, 
I went to the UK. I went to the little town of Tunbridge Wells to to interview the creator <laughs> of it um, personally because it's it's fabulous. But it's it's a compass, um, you know, like like a real compass based on a, a, a big five personality traits from mm-hmm. you know psychometric testing. And I know psychometric testing is is quite controversial. And I you know I don't want to get in the middle of that fight, but I do think that if you if you use them conscientiously, they can actually be very helpful tools. I found the tool to be very helpful. Um, psychological consultancy. Uh, is the the company that uh, that does that? I found that uh, my personality was uh, mildly intense, which I found to be absolutely awesome. Um, I'm going to so go with strongly passionate. Strong, things, exactly. Though. I don't know. Mildly so, intense. Okay. Yeah. So risk type compass. Um, I have facilitated. Uh, a lot of conversations at companies around this, uh, which can also be very, very useful in dealing with your clients, you know, particularly, you know, financial services or, you know, companies that are helping people deal with risk. Uh, so I do, I, I do do those. Um, I've got a companion work workbook that's going to be uh, coming out soon. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, just to start out with, you know, you read, read, you are what you risk, and it'll get you to start thinking about things. And um, it's interesting, someone asked me recently, should I read you are what you risk or the gray rhino first? And it's, you know, the gray rhino is more of a sort of organizational framework, mm-hmm. an analytical framework, you know, five stages, where's this the crisis, what stage is it in and why? And uh, you are what you risk actually goes into much more personal reasons why you and your organization might find you in one stage or the other. So, uh, you know, I do related Grey Rhino workshops as uh, as well. So as we come to the end then, Michelle, what is the biggest risk you've ever taken? I think it's it's to to be my own to be my own brand, uh, you know, to, to be an entrepreneur. Uh, you know, when I was raised, I think that there were certain, you know, careers that you were expected to take as as a bright, high achieving student. Hence, you know, the medical school thing. I was like, well, that's what you're supposed to do. And that's why I hadn't didn't really think about passing out when I saw blood. Um, but it was also, you know, this prestige of, you know, if you work for this company, you know, you have a byline in the Wall Street Journal or, you know, that's really prestigious. Or, you know, you have a big title at a prestigious organization. And that's what people really get excited about. But if that's not a good match with your skills, with what you're really good at. And so I've, I've gone through life between, you know, working for the man and freelancing and, you know, and I think that, you know, I found that when I'm on my own, uh, you know, I've got diversified income sources. I've got a greater sense of satisfaction and, and, and purpose. And so in that sense, it's actually less, risky. So, you know, again, we talked at the beginning about how it depends on how you, how you look at something. And one of the messages that comes through the book is, you know, sometimes the biggest risk that you can take is, is sitting still and not taking what you think are risk, but just by doing nothing, you're taking a risk. I think when others, I I find as I reflect, when others say to me, oh, I could never do that, like move from England to the States, I uh, could, could never leave corporate for the security of the paycheck to be an entrepreneur. Oh, I could never, never. And I look at what I've done as, uh, well, that's just just what everybody does, isn't it? So it's different from an inside out perspective to an outside in. But those moments are the ones where we can pause and say, is this the fingerprint I want to leave? Or is it time to put the gloves on and try something different? So, Michelle, as we come to the end of our time together, how can people find out more for you? What final thoughts do you have for us? Well, you can uh, you can find me on social media, Twitter at Wooker, W-U-C-K-E-R. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I have a, a fairly regular column there. 
Uh, you can just find me on, on, on LinkedIn. You can subscribe. My website is thegrayrhino.com. Uh, gray with an A, although the E will also get you there. <laughs> uh, International. Then, <laughs> exactly. In hindsight, I wish I'd gone with the E. It was I didn't know how big the book was going to be uh, international. It's, it's, you know, much bigger internationally even than in the U.S., but, you know, mm -hmm. hindsight is uh, is twenty twenty. But there's information about both books there, both, you know, a little bit more information, how to order. There's a there's a, an article on my blog about creativity that lets you take the risk type compass and, and see what your, uh, your risk type is. Oh, love it. Okay. Well, Michelle, I'll make sure all of that information is in the show notes. I want to thank you for giving us such a, a passionate and insightful journey through risk, the gray rhino, the elephant in the room, the black swan, etc. And I look forward to future conversations. Thank you so much. It's been really wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much for joining Morag today. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you learned something worth sharing, share it. Cultivate your relationships today when you don't need anything before you need something. Be sure to follow Sky Team and Morag on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any ideas about topics we should tackle, interviews we should do, or if you yourself would like to be on the show, drop us a line at info at skyteam.com. That's S-K-Y-E-Team.com. Thanks again for joining us today. And remember, business is personal and relationships matter. We are your allies.